not even picked up on radar. Uh, you know, you get 60, 70 miles from a radar site, and I mean, and the bottom of the beam may be as low as three to 4,000 feet. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day, welcome to episode 110 of the Rotary Wing Show. I'm your host, Mick, and thanks for, for hanging out as we get to learn a bit more about the helicopter industry and hopefully take away something that makes us better or safer operators. When I was instructing, we would structure our commercial theory course to start off with the meteorology subject to get students to, to sit that exam first. The thinking was that MET was a, a good introduction to the theory component of flying because it's something that everyone off the street has some experience with already. Most people have experienced a thunderstorm, fog, winds, and seen an inversion layers. So it was building on the, the known before moving into the, the unknown and going into more detail. But for many aircrew, there comes a period after being qualified where we don't keep extending that weather knowledge or even revisit it much of it at all. And it can get pretty rusty when it comes around to flight review time. Weather is such a, a top contributing factor to so many accidents. If you're listening to this today and you have any kind of helicopter background whatsoever, then I'm sure you can recall at least one fatal accident due to weather. Matt Johnson is a FAA Gold Seal helicopter instructor and a pilot examiner with a special interest in aviation weather education. Matt has a background in law enforcement as well as 12 years in the EMS role. At Metro Aviation in the US, he is a champion for developing their in-house weather training program and taking that on the road to Metro's several hundred helicopter pilots. Matt takes us inside some of the aspects of that weather training and some of the different tools and briefing formats available. Now, don't worry, we are not going to be breaking down TAF decodes live on air and, and putting you to sleep. This is more about how to go and find the good info and some of the limitations of the tools that we use, like weather radar. Particular weather products that Matt references may be US specific. There are definitely ones there that we don't have an equivalent for here in Australia, but I think there are good takeaways in here for all of us. To kick us off, I asked Matt about how he made the transition from law enforcement into helicopters as a full-time career. Yeah, it, uh, it went well. Um, I still fly law enforcement on a part-time basis. I've uh, been sworn law enforcement officer, I guess, 26 years, 27, something like that now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Gets long, doesn't it? But uh, as far as uh, adjustment, no, I, I've been out of full-time law enforcement for quite some time as far as you know, normal law enforcement duties. And a, long, a large portion of my time was flying law enforcement, but uh, for the past 12 years, I've been flying air medical. 
was that your introduction to flying through the police or flying something you just picked up because you no. Uh, you know, it was one of those uh, things, uh, like a lot of young people that got the bug and, uh, you know, went on a helicopter tour ride as a kid and just fascinated with it. And something that, you know, you put in the back of your mind that, you know, you always want to do it and you're waiting for that perfect opportunity to come along. So uh, I was one of those people that didn't let grass grow under my feet and uh, just kind of went after it. And how'd you break into aeromedical? Was that... You picked up a an early job there, or did you have to get some experience first? Yeah, so I did a lot of things. I built a lot of time flying law enforcement. I did some tour work. I did uh, some agriculture work. I flew news for a while. Most of my time was built flying law enforcement. And then uh, I guess about 12 years ago, I got into air medical. Absolutely loved it. Every day, it's great. Great job. We'll talk about the company there shortly. I just had one more question, and again, it's just a different terminology from, from what we see in Australia. But a, a gold seal instructor, what's the what, what's that about? What's the the significance of that? So, in the United States, you have an option to on your flight instructor certificate or your card the. Uh, the FAA or, or Department of Transportation logo is um, generally, you know, it's black or blue. I don't remember exactly which it is. I believe it's blue on the flight instructor certificate. But if you do certain things, uh, achieve different milestones, you can apply to have that gold seal put on there. So uh, something the FAA did, I don't know, I think they started that, uh, I believe I heard one time in the late 60s or 70s. I could be wrong on that, but some, you know, some people apply for it. Some people don't even know it exists. On the flight instructing side, you have to have uh, so many applicants in a certain amount of time pass their flight exam on their first go around. You can also get it as a flight examiner, uh, depending on the number of flight exams that you do. So... Yeah, okay, that's awesome. I just wasn't sure uh, what the, the difference with was that. Let's talk weather, which would be the, I guess, the, the focus here and, and the safety side. How did the the weather focus come around? Was that something you'd had previous experience with in terms of, you know, incidents of your own or of people that you knew? Or was well, this just part of the safety program that was picked up with? Well, I, w- I would be lying to you if I... That I was always a weather geek. <laughs> sure. I uh, like a lot of pilots coming up. I, um, I I don't know that I want to say I struggled with weather. I just maybe I wasn't as interested in learning about it as all of the other subjects that come along with with being you know a professional pilot. And it it's not that I didn't like it. It's just the way that it was presented and and it was there, there's so much weather theory that is thrown at pilots and to a certain point i wholeheartedly agree i mean there there needs to be a basic foundational level there of weather but the way it's presented and the way it's taught generally speaking is, is a big turnoff for the average pilot and that's not just my take on it mick i mean if you look at uh, some statistics and research um Several years ago now, I'm going to say four or five years ago, maybe longer, 
Uh, Embry-Riddle here in the United States did a phenomenal study on weather uh, and pilots. And the, the premise of, of the study essentially was based around they wanted to grade pilots, their knowledge level on different uh, facets of weather, whether it be convective activity or um, you know how to read uh, weather reports and so forth. And the results, um, the, the report was, I believe it was a couple hundred pages. I mean, it was quite in depth and the results were astonishing. I mean, even at the commercial instrument level, the majority of those pilots were barely at like a C minus level uh, in terms of a, a traditional grading scale. And it, it went much lower for your student and, and private pilot level. So that, that kind of backs up my theory that, you know, pilots aren't into the way that weather is taught. And I kind of took issue with that because, you know, what, what we do uh, in, in helicopter or well, specifically helicopter air ambulances, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like scheduled flights and, and airlines and, and so forth where, you know, we never know when we're going to get called. We never know where we're going to land and, and so forth. So that changes the dynamics of everything. And what my focus is, and I've been you know, really fortunate to have a, a very supportive boss, the, the director of operations at Metro Aviation, he's really uh, let me run with this and, and even given me more to do, you know, under his direction to, you know, institute some weather training programs at our company. You know, we're really proud of that. I would venture to say that we go way above and beyond more so than any other air medical operator in the United States. We're the only one that I know of that has a, you know, a dedicated uh, training program for all new hires. And it's not just all computer-based learning. This is, you know, this is in-person instruction and what we focus on, Nick, is not that weather theory that tends to, you know, glaze people's eyes over and, and you know, in just five minutes of weather theory, they're, they're all tuned out. We focus on weather products, what's available, how to use them, where to find them, how to use them. And we, we focus on weather product, you know, acquisition, the interpretation of those products, and then how to apply that in a real life scenario that gets thrown our way daily in air medical. So uh, we do a lot of training. We, we had a, a horrific accident in the uh, industry, not, not our company, but in the industry uh, two or three years ago uh, where a Bell 407 took off and, and there was a, a lot of factors involved in this accident that is, will be studied for years to come. But there were some, some weather issues and to make a very long story as short and concise as I can. A pilot took off and encountered some snow showers and, uh, you know, inadvertently, you know, went into IMC conditions and likely icing conditions and uh, tried to make a 180 degree turn and, and crashed and everyone on board perished. And it was, it was horrific. Uh, one of the things that we learned from that accident was that although radar coverage is really, really good in the continental United States, we're fortunate to have a, a you know really good system with the, the WSR 88D network. I believe there's somewhere around 150, maybe 160 throughout the CONUS. 
but what we found is that that coverage is is pretty good for our fixed wing brethren as they get higher in altitudes but even though some people may not like to believe it the uh, you know the earth is not flat it is round and we with the curvature of the earth we lose the you know the bottom portion of the the radar beam that comes from the weather radars and when you get a certain distance from that radar site a lot of precipitation events especially things that affect us like low stratiform events whether it be you know snow or ice but regardless low level stratiform it's not even picked up on radar uh, you know you get 60 70 miles from a radar site and i mean and the bottom of the beam may be as low as three to four thousand feet and that's exactly what happened in this this accident that i bring up and what we learned from that is there are radars available in the area that would have picked that up they're terminal doppler weather radar systems and they're not they're designed for class b's and charlies and here in the united states and i, I don't recall the equivalent of that and over in australia but that's generally obviously your your bigger uh, air transport airports and so forth and uh they did that years ago for being able to pick up on convective activity and, and you know microbursts and wind shear activity near those major air air carrier airports. And that data is out there, but you know, until recently, no one knew how to find that. And a lot of the tools that we use on a daily basis here in the United States, we have something that is, is phenomenal that was developed uh, many years ago called the Heens tool. And as you may know, we, we don't refer to ourselves as HEMS in the United States any longer. It's HAA or helicopter air ambulance. But that platform uses algorithms and some gridded uh, localized aviation model output statistics programs. And it, it kind of gives us a really good picture of what we're up against. And it has radar overlays. The problem is that system as it stands right now only uses the WSR-88D network. It doesn't include those TDWRs. And in, in that specific incident, that accident that, I, you know, that I'm talking about, had that TDWR data been available, that would have shown up. And after that happened, our director of operations kind of you know, sprung into action and said, wow, you know, we, we need to do something about this. So there was an immediate change to the, you know, to the uh, operations manual or what you may know as, you know, standard operating procedure, SOP or whatever. That's when he really started kicking around the idea about we got to make sure our pilots are trained and aware of these limitations. So we, we really haven't looked back since then. We we're doing all that we can to raise the uh, awareness level on that. And that scenario I described through research and, and talking to folks with, at the National Weather Service and the FAA, there really are only a couple of places in the United States that lacks radar coverage in such a way that the TDWR would give you everything you need. And, and sadly and ironically, one of those places is, is essentially exactly where that accident happened. So we've kind of changed our philosophy. We want to make sure folks know, one, what you see on radar is, is, is past tense, right? So it's already happened. Even, you know, real live time radar, ground radar, that is. I mean, there's there's some serious, I shouldn't say serious, there, there's a certain amount of latency there. So what you see on radar is 
is in the past and it has since moved on uh, anywhere from you know several seconds to several minutes depending on the circumstances so we're trying to raise the awareness on knowing you know radar latency issues what radar tools are available and some of the recommendations that came out of that specific accident we're really proud you know metro is i think spearheaded a lot of things and and networking both with the FAA and the National Weather Service to get things changed, and and we are. Since then, the uh, National Weather Service main radar page here for the United States has been upgraded so that users of that system can discern what type of radar they're getting their information from. They can look at a, a national mosaic where you know all the radars are kind of patched together and you're getting one big picture, and it you know it filters out a lot of clutter, if you will, whether it be, you know, biological or whatever. And they also have given us the capability to zoom in to individual radar sites, both the NextRad system and then also those TDWRs that are located close to uh, Class B and C airports. So that's a really good thing. The National Weather Service, where we work as an operator, I, I can't say this for sure, maybe speaking out of turn, but I, I would venture to say we're probably the only one working one-on-one, hand-in-hand with them. The National Weather Service is currently running a a beta weather site. Uh, Aviationweather.gov will be changed this fall. And our director of operations was so (laughs) serious about it that he, you know, he made all whatever it is, five, 600 pilots. I don't know exactly how many aware that, hey, this is, you know, there's changes going on. There's a beta website. We want you to go take a look at the website. Um, kick around a little bit, see what works, what doesn't work, and provide feedback. And we're collecting that data daily, and we've already got a lot of good data. And then I work with my contact at National Weather Service. So it's really uh, it's really cool to be part of that because the the future of aviationweather.gov we we have a hand in basically you know with our feedback, letting them know what works for us and what's what's best for us. The HEMS tool that I mentioned earlier, as we know it here in the United States, you know, it's, it's good. I really don't want to say it's going away, but it is, it's being revamped into a new product called the GFA LA. And that's the graphical forecast for aviation and the LA stands for uh, low altitude. So they're really starting to hone in and help us and work with us. Those of us that operate low level, as you may know, the, area forecast that was a staple in American aviation for since the, the 30s. It was very antiquated. It was uh, often condensed. You know, it was like this old teletype and it was shortened because back then they just, it couldn't take enough characters to, to be able to spell out all the words. Well, that was, you know, that had been obsolete for years and was, some people would tell you it was, you know, a very little help. And uh, in about 2017, they switched over to the graphical forecast for aviation, which modernized everything. So now you've got this nice full color graphical display where you can go back in time, see what the weather was doing. So you can monitor trends and then you can even go out to 18 hours out. So there's been a lot of advancements in terms of uh, weather products. And sadly, circling back to the the Embry-Riddle discussion of what they found in their study, a lot of pilots just don't know what's available out there. Because anytime they hear weather, they hear, oh, there's a weather webinar, there's a seminar, there's in-service training or whatever. 
for the most part, I think, and this is just me subjectively throwing this out, I think most people just kind of shut down. They feel they, they know enough to survive. They know what looks bad. But when you get into basic weather interpretation, product interpretation, you'll see in the Embry-Riddle study that uh, a lot of people were, were deficient on every, everything and anything and everything from deciphering uh, IFR to marginal VFR in terms of color coding. So that's that's one of many things we are trying to do as a company. And, and we, we know that with our efforts, it's, it's not just going to help us. It's going to help every operator in the country is, is our goal. Well, there's a bunch of stuff there that's U.S. specific, but I mean, the Australian situation is is not that much different. But I'll tell you what, Matt, probably, look, well, this conversation is worth it for me, if, if nothing else, that like in the last 20 years, you know, it sounds completely obvious once you, you said it, but I've never actually thought about or heard anyone talk about the fact that you get that fall off in radar coverage at low level. Like, you know, it's fairly obvious with hills and things, but just with the... Sure the curvature of the earth and as you get away from it. Our radar sites here in Australia are pretty sparse and really just around the major population centres. So there's huge areas which just don't have weather radar coverage that that we can use as pilots. But there's definitely areas where it's a fair way away from the station and I've just made always made an assumption that what you see is is roughly, you know, what's out there with a, a grain of salt. But I had actually never spoken with students or even thought about myself or heard anyone else talking about the fact that you get that that fall off in a, that dead zone at a low level, mm-hmm. especially for, for helicopter ops. So, look, in terms of, of a takeaway, that's that's awesome. Like, that's something new that I've never kind of thought about beforehand. And I think we only really get one type of weather radar that in terms of we our options on our government weather, weather site. So it's interesting that you guys can now get an option between multiple ones. Yeah, we're pretty fortunate to have that. As I alluded to earlier, Nick, it's, it, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know, and it, it's a matter of awareness training. It, it's literally a matter of, you know, asking someone uh, and, and incorporating this type of knowledge into proficiency checks, new hire curriculums, because it's kind of sad. And I, you know, one of my other hats is, you know, I'm a pilot examiner for the FAA here in the United States, you know, helicopter private through ATP. I can, I can ask certain weather questions. Some of the responses I get are, uh, well, I mean, they're all over the place. And to, to a certain degree, I mean, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's, a, it's a flawed system that many of us are trying to improve. And, and let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. If, the the knowledge exams that you take in the United States for the different certificate levels, if you if you really get down and you put you know pen to pad and you you do the calculations, you know you could in theory miss every single weather question that may be populated on a knowledge exam and you would still pass. And you you could miss every single weather related question, and you could still pass the exam. Uh, with that 70%. So, of course, in a perfect world, if I were king for a day, we would, you, you, folks would be tested on different sections. And now, granted, we know if an applicant 
misses every single weather question, we're going to see all of those codings. And as examiners, we have to analyze each one of those missed question codes and, and figure out the premise of that question and the, the nature of it and incorporate that in a plan of action. And we, we make sure that they now do understand that, that their instructor has worked with them and, and they've got that resolved. Now, I will also follow up and say this, and anyone can do this. If you open up the private pilot practical test standards or the, even the commercial pilot practical test standards, okay, and you hit your little magnifying glass or you use the <laughs> control F, type in the word radar, okay, um, you will get several returns, no pun intended on that, you know, returns. But um, my point is this, it, it is not weather radar all of those returns it, it was it will be radar in relation to air traffic control radar services vectoring traffic separation et cetera et cetera they want to make sure applicants know how to call up atc and and get get flight following et cetera when it comes to radar and weather you will find that word used in one phrase one time throughout the entire document and that's for the radar summary chart. And the radar summary chart is this antiquated, I don't want to use the word useless because it's not completely useless, maybe, you know, for for some, but in, in our world, in the helicopter low level, real time, right now, what's going on, weather scenario, it is essentially useless to us. It's just a big graph of the CONUS and it shows where radar returns are at a static, the static imagery shot that's updated every hour. It has, it, it's essentially useless for anything that we would do, but that's, that's what we're still operating on in terms of some standards. That's the only time that you will find the word radar as it relates to weather in our current practical test standards. Now they're being rewritten and they're, they're migrating over to the airman certification standards in time to follow suit with the airplane community. But therein lies my point is nothing has changed for years. There, there's no testing. There's no guidance. There's no initial indoctrination uh, training on, you know, how radar works, uh, interpretation of it, you know, where, where to go to find approved radar sources. You know, there's all sorts of great apps that you can put on your phone and your iPad and even your desktop. But, you know, you need to know where that information is coming from. You know, is that a National Weather Service derivative type product or, or what? And and we don't and I say we I'm talking the, the general industry, not helicopter air, air ambulance, just helicopter aviation in general in the United States is is not where it needs to be. So these training programs you're running then, is it, are you getting pilots through or do you go out on site and it's like a, a day program? How, what sort of structure are you, are well, you wrapping around this? What we do is we've done in-person and we've done virtual, uh, especially we, <laughs> I think we got pretty good at doing the virtual <laughs> yeah. things during the pandemic, like the rest of the world. Um, but there's something to be said for in-person training. And that's the thing about weather is there's always something going on. It may not be where you are, but you can always zoom into some part of the country, almost always, and find something and you can give scenarios. And it doesn't matter if it's someone that's been flying air medical one year or 
25 years, you will run into the full gamut of experience levels out there. You will talk to people that's been flying 20, 25 years, and you ask a basic question on radar, and you get the proverbial deer in the headlights look. And and that's, you know, that's not, uh, you know, that's not a slam on them. That's that's a fault of the industry in general, of the helicopter industry in general, and, and air, airplane as well, for that matter, because the Embry Riddle study that I, I referenced that that wasn't uh, that that was pilot population wide. I don't think that that was broken down into fixed versus uh, uh, you know rotor wing. So, but we're trying to change that. We're just trying to give some basic education of what keywords mean on the weather applications that we make available to them, and we we make it part of the big picture for for overall weather situational awareness and that's a big thing that we push and and we define you know weather situational awareness as you know what was the weather uh in short term or short you know recent uh past what was it in the past what is it now and then what do we think it's going to be in the near term so that's the complete weather situational awareness picture we have a lot of tools that will help us with that. I mean, of course, no forecast is perfect. The further out a forecast goes, generally you know, speaking, the less reliable or accurate it may be. And that's why, you know, the, the National Weather Service, they've, they've been very good with feedback. And I know with the new GFA low altitude that's coming our way this fall, would you switch, say, as an example, from the GFA, the regular version, like for out, uh, airplane, uh, flying uh, higher altitudes, et cetera, versus the low altitude, the parameters change, the forecast only goes out to five hours. And now the uh, altitude range starts at the surface and goes up to 5,000 feet. So they're trying to, you know, cater and uh, tailor more to the, the low altitude uh, flying community. It's interesting that, that study and what you're talking about there. I especially remember learning weather and, and being asked questions on it and you'd give the answer in terms of, you know, what, what does this decode mean on the weather forecast? And there's that extra layer of, okay, that's what the, the coding means, but then what does that actually mean in terms of impact on your flight? And so there's that, right. you know, again, just the pure nature of, of learning to get through those initial tests is you learn what the answer is, but then what you're talking about there too, in terms of the, the situational awareness of the future weather is, okay, that's that's what the decode is, but what does it actually mean in terms of how you're gonna use that information? Yeah. And and what you just said, you know, Mick, is, is part of the overall program that, you know, we're doing with our pilots and, um, you know, why our, our, our company and our, our director of operations has, has really pushed this basic awareness can go uh, a long way. And like you just said, just knowing where to go to, I think you referred to it as, you know, the decoder ring, if you will, or, you know, base, just basics of how to decipher what we're looking at. And sometimes, you know, you can look at something and it can be great, but because the way the system is set up, um, it can be a real gotcha. You know, I'll give you an example. The the HEMS tool that we use in the United States is wonderful. You can look and it 
for all intents and purposes, you could have can, to. Can anyone verb. use that, Matt, or is that only you need a particular Absolutely. login for that? Yeah, you can, you can get on there right now. You can go to aviationweather.gov and go down to tools and click on the HEMS tool. Um, but my point is the way the algorithms work and the reporting, generally speaking, if you see a coding of pink, it's low IFR, red is IFR, and then blue is marginal VFR, and then green is, is IFR. Okay. Part of the, the rub comes in that it's some of the reporting stations, you could have a few or scattered layer of clouds at four, five, 600 feet. And it's still going to show green because by legal definition, it's not considered a ceiling unless it's broken or overcast, right? So there's little things like that. And that was one of the things I bring that up because it was highlighted in the Embry-Riddle study that basic weather classification from low IFR, IFR, marginal VFR, and VFR was a, a downfall of many of the respondents in that survey. I'm looking at that page now and yeah, I don't, we don't have a similar product and it's obviously being an audio product here, but essentially it's, it's a map with a, a lot of dots on it and uh, color-coded green for IFR and then, oh, sorry, VFR, uh, red for IFR. Uh, MVFR, what's, what's that stand for? Marginal VFR. Yeah, okay, that's an interesting presentation. So basically, yeah, a map full of dots of different colors as a as a information product. So yeah, okay, we don't have an equivalent for that one. That's, that's different. So if, and again, everyone's probably gonna have different products there, but in terms of just maybe if someone's missing something that's out there at the moment, when you sit and plan a flight now, Matt, what are your sort of go-to things that you look at? Well, I'll look at the HEMS tool. I'll look at the GFA. Um, which has a lot of the same information. But if you happen to have that site pulled up that you mentioned, you know, the Heems tool, there's also, there's a slider at the top right. And you can go back in time. And remember what I said a few minutes ago, with, what we really push is for folks to know the total weather situational awareness picture. And the only way to do that is to know what has happened in the past because that'll give you a really good idea. If there's a system moving through, if a, if a front moving through our low pressure system starting to, you know, uh, make its way to your area uh, or whatever, you know, you kind of look at the trend and see what happens uh, after that system passed a, a known area at a, at a given time. And those, those are some of the tools that's been made available to us that a lot of people don't really fully grasp or understand that so we can you know we can go in reverse if you will and, and look at what's happened the past couple hours and see how once that system moved through a given area with similar similar terrain or or features or whatever we can see what what the end result was as that system passed through and i think forecasters will tell you that as well that they'll they'll go back and look and see how a system affected an area and speaking of forecasters and them telling you things uh, and and all the great products that's available to us that a lot of people don't know about and and this one is still mind-boggling to me so you can ask any pilot about a task and you know they they know the the basic the rote basics of a task okay well it covers this this size of an area 
and it's issued every either 24 or good for, you know, 24 to 30 hours issued about every six hours, et cetera. And, and most people are still good at decoding them, even though most apps these days will decode it for you, which brings up another gotcha issue. But regardless, most people know what a tap is. Okay. What people don't realize is you don't really, when you read a task, you don't get to go inside the mind of the forecaster that wrote that task. Okay. But there's a product available and it has been for years and there's been a big push. And I will say that the, that push has been beneficial because more and more people know about this, this product that goes hand in hand with the TAF, and that's the aviation forecast discussion or the forecast discussion. And it's, it's readily available. It's in a lot of apps like ForeFlight. They make it very accessible and it's great. And what it is, is let's say that all of a sudden Mick is, is the forecaster for a weather forecast office here in, in the United States. It covers a, a certain geographic area. I say it's my area and, and you as the forecaster, write, write the task but you have some uncertainty, so you don't include your uncertainties in that task. You may feel that there's a good chance of, you know, storms later in the day, but it's not enough of a, it's not high enough of a probability where you include it in the task, okay? So the average pilot reads the task, oh, looks like a great day, next thing you know, afternoon storms pop up, and people say, oh, this forecast is junk. Those guys and girls don't know what they're doing, when in reality, if you went behind the scenes and you went into the mind of the forecaster, you would read something like, you know, as an example, you know, some of the models are hinting that we may have some convective activity this afternoon. I'm unsure of the timing. The models aren't quite sure of the timing, so not going to include it at this time. So that aviation forecast discussion People always ask me, they're like, yeah, you're really into this weather thing. And it's like, well, it's, I kind of have to be because it's, it's, it's our livelihood, right? Absolutely. People ask, yeah. you know, what, what, what's the first, where's the first place you go? The absolute first place I go when I start a ship, the first thing that I sit down and click on and look at is the aviation forecast discussion. And so I will can you go me to my- onto that. So if someone's in front of a computer, how do they find that for themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so go to aviationweather.gov. Yep. And if you go to the uh, if you go to the very top and you go to forecast and you've got a little drop down. So oh, okay, yeah, very, last option. Uh, yeah. At the very bottom it says aviation forecast discussion. So now you get this little color mosaic of, of the components and you click on any Weather forecast office. All right, let's go Seattle. Yeah, so are, you said you picked Seattle? Yep. Yeah. So if you look at that, what you're seeing there is basically the forecaster is making, I guess you could call it like a journal entry. They're trying to speak to the users of the product. And it's in English too. It's not, not in, uh, not in uh, code. Yeah, it's not ri- written in code, generally speaking. And I want you to look at that. About two-thirds of the way down, it says, a few rain showers are possible today, but most areas are dry. 
that's great information to know. And if you look at their tap, it may or may not have a showers in the vicinity. They may, the probability may not have been high enough to include that in there. This is probably the best. I'm being a little opinionated, subjective here. This is a, a phenomenal product that the National Weather Service gives us, and it is my absolute number one go-to where I start my uh, at the beginning of my shift to see what I can expect. It's it, it's been so long. That, I was going to say, yeah. We, yeah, when we were on an army base, it's been years and years since we've had it. But you're right that the different level would have occasionally the the Met forecasters who actually made the TAF would come in and give the weather presentation for the, the night flying or whatever was happening. And I just remember as you're talking that you're right, they would give the TAF on the screen, but they would give that whole narrative behind it and, and pull up some of the other sort of tooling that they had to, to create the TAF. But that's been so long ago that I've, and I guess most pilots' experience would be you get the TAF and that's what you've got <laughs> in terms of, of what you're looking at. And then, yeah, it's where this comes in in terms of, yeah, it gives that extra context to, to how the TAF came about. Yeah. Yeah, you're able to, to go in the mind of the, the forecaster, essentially, and it, it's it's such a great tool because I understand that, you know, the TAFs are, they're designed for what? It's a terminal aerodrome forecast, right? It's designed for your larger airports, your Bravos and Charlies and and deltas will sometimes have them, and and you could even have them for for less restrictive, uncontrolled fields as well, and under certain circumstances. But the point of the story is this: that's the it's a point forecast. Think of it as like the size of a college campus. It's 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 literally you know like a five mile radius, because they want to know what they want to know what the weather's going to be when during takeoff and landing. Of course, there's some in route weather is always there as well but the critical phase is takeoff and landing you know what is the weather going to be at that air carrier uh, operational field at the time so the tasks are very point driven you know so you're going from point a to b well you may not have a task all that close to either point a or b so what you can do is look at these forecast discussions and kind of patch them together and see what one forecast office is saying to the next closest one and kind of, you know, get that big picture and make that part of your, your overall big picture. Okay. Any other tooling that you use that other people? Oh, I, yeah, I could go on for hours and hours. <laughs> All um, right. Give us, but, give us another couple of ones if you want, right? And then, uh, we'll... yeah, yeah. But the, you know, the big thing, Mick is, is, understanding that the weather products that they are out there you have to you have to acquire them that's why we we focus on weather product acquisition and then how to interpret what you're looking at and then take what you're looking at and apply that to your shift and and i always say and i didn't come up with this i heard this from a you know, very experienced aviator years ago and I, I try to pass it along to everyone that i can that'll listen is for, for what we do anyway, you know, helicopter air ambulance, you almost have to be obsessed with the weather in a way. You you have to be obsessed with, with knowing that total situational awareness of what it was, what it is right now, and what you think it's going to be. Because there's no scheduled flights. There's no 
oh, we're going to go do a patrol in a couple hours. No, you don't know. I mean, the, the phone or radio could go off at any time. And you take a look at all of your resources that you have and you, you be as efficient as you can and, and make that call, that go, no go decision. That's it. Now, are you taking this training on the road? How are you sort of, obviously you're doing oh, internally at Metro, but is this something that you're doing for, for the wider kind of helicopter industry as well? No, not, not necessarily. This is, you know, for Metro, uh, I do check airman duties for them and, and some other duties and, and I fly the line full time. So not only do I get to, you know, talk about this stuff and, and uh, it, it, for me, it's not uh, what if it's not scenarios are great, especially in training. But for me, I'm able to do this on a near daily basis and then, you know, take those lessons learned, some good lessons, some hard learned lessons and, and pass those on to new, you know, up and coming air ambulance pilots. So, do you want to talk just quickly about Metro then? Because again, looking from Australia, it's you know it's a, it's a big umbrella company. When I looked at some of the smaller operations, I recognise some of the, the logos. But do you want to just quickly sort of give a, a scope of of the size of the company? Uh, wow, and where it's involved? Yeah, well, I don't know that I'm the best person for that. I, it's a it's a large company. Uh, I can't say enough good about it. It's it's a very large company, yet it's very um, family driven. We had, uh, you know, even with 600 pilots, we had uh, one of our pilots' mother passed away a couple months ago. The uh, that pilot a, a week or so later got a a very nice personalized card in the mail from from one uh, from the owner, and. Uh, that uh, that really resonated with a lot of people, you know, because there's a lot of us, just a few of them, right, you know, and uh, a lot of us, and and for them to do stuff like that, that that was uh, that meant a lot to that pilot. So it's nice that they've grown and they're so big, but they're still so personal, and they invest a lot in training. Our training center is phenomenal, uh, level D simulators, and uh, just an absolutely incredible training staff there at their headquarters and their bases are uh, I can't tell you how many there are they're well over a hundred I again I'm not the best person to, to say that just because I don't know all the numbers but uh, they are all over the United States but even a workforce for 600 pilots like that's you know that's a it's a fair organization yeah for sure Brilliant. All right. Well, if you can load me up with links to that uh, initial Embry Riddle study and whatever else you've got, I will Absolutely. punch those. Yeah, I'll put those links and, and any uh, sort of demo graphics or anything like that will uh, put up for, for people to come and listen to or actually sorry, go through the blog and have a look at. Because, yeah, I guess, especially being aviation, where the products are, them just are visual. You have to go until so you go and look. But if we can put. Yeah, if you can give me links, I'll uh, put those there and, and people can find an easy way to get to them. And, yeah, unfortunately, we just don't have access to some of those products here in Australia. And it's just a, I guess, a, a population and, and uh, cost type sure. considerations that go with it. But, yeah, is there anything else, Matt, that you wanted to pull out, I guess, that maybe we haven't covered that are like the, the things you you kind of want people to walk away with? Um, I guess 
could go on for hours, <laughs> but I, I think we've already uh, hammered everything out. Again, know, knowing what resources are out there, and once you track them down, how to how to read them, and uh, knowing that total weather situational awareness picture is is uh, critical for safety. So I can't emphasize that enough. Well, quiz you on just one of the things you dropped. You you talked about a lot of the modern apps will take the the weather decode and essentially turn it into English. And you said that it can be sometimes there's a, a few gotchas around that. I was just going to say, have you got an example? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I don't have anything in front of me, but so, there are some little caveats that you may find in a uh, METAR report. And uh, you, you would only glean that from looking at the raw METAR textual information, the apps and their algorithms and, and how they have it set up to decode or decipher that may miss some some things you know whether it be you know how much rain you've had in the last hour or or whatever there are some things that cannot show up as an example and i think this could be an ikl standard don't quote me on that but when you see a basic readout for a, a METAR here in the United States and, and maybe worldwide for that matter, again, I'm not sure. If you see that the dollar sign, the American dollar sign, right? That That is indicative that some part of that weather system that gave you that METAR isn't functioning correctly and it needs maintenance. And you may not know what what part of the system it is that is not functioning correctly. And guess what? On at least all of the apps that I use, and, and again, I you know I'm a big Forflight fan. I can't say enough good about that product. I, I use it daily. That's what our company utilizes. But uh, it may not show. It may not show up if you have that indication that you know something is wrong with that uh, you know AWOS or uh, AWOS three or even you know a hopefully an ASOS station. You don't know what part of it's not working. So sometimes it's good to be able to go look at the raw data. And that's where you, you know, ideally when you do this stuff, you want to have multiple uh, computer monitors. It's hard to switch back and forth. And you use something like the GFA or the Ames tool, you can mouse over or recurse over the weather reporting stations and it will, you can set the system to read the uh, the text information in its raw format. And then, you know, you can kind of compare that to your, your translated format uh, as well. So it's not about one resource. It's about having multiple resources, and it's about knowing how they complement one another and work with one another. Yeah, it's great. No, look, I haven't seen that dollar sign before. We normally get like a couple of dash lines next to a particular item if that's not available but uh yeah not the not the dollar sign yeah okay matt thank you it's just a again another reminder or a, i guess a, a poke there for people to, to go back and and dig into it uh the weather side of things i think you know australian experience is gonna be pretty similar in terms of people coming in for a, a flight review um, and how up to date they're going to be with some of the, the questions and, and the products uh, again just due to the nature of a lot of the operations which are you know, we're pretty blessed in Australia with reasonably good weather and people are often not flying very far, especially in a rotary wing from, from their home base. So the weather is pretty much what they can see out, out the window. 
And right. our fleet tends to be very, very much VFR. There's not that many uh, helicopters fitted with um, with the extra instruments. So it's, yeah, that again, of, much people look out the window <laughs> and that's the weather. And that's one of the things about Metro is we, many of our aircraft, many of our programs are IFR capable and, and we fly single pilot IFR. So having that knowledge and those tools available is uh, very critical for us. So, and one thing I was going to say is uh, someday if you would like to review that accident and see the actual radar data, I would love to do a zoom or Google meet with you and let you see that and, and uh, absorb all that information, see it with your own eyes. Let's do it. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you different from this and it may not end up being a podcast or not, even if it's a short video, why not? More more uh, info is is always better. So that's great. Well, Matt, well, thank you. Yeah, that's as I said, that's a great refresher, and really appreciate your your time and, and being willing to to share the info with everyone. All right, thanks a lot, Mick. If you are interested in in seeing what some of those different forecast products look like that we spoke about, I've got examples and links on the show notes for this episode over at rotarywingshow.com. There are also a couple of images and reference material there that cover the effect on ground-based weather radars caused by the curvature of the Earth. If you have a, a favourite weather briefing tool or a forecast source that you use and want to let others know about, then drop me a line at feedback at rotarywingshow.com and let me know about it. If you want to connect directly with Matt, you can find him on LinkedIn do a search for Matt Johnson. He's at Metro Aviation. This show is brought to you through the support of these very generous listeners. Much appreciation to Heath, Gareth, Brent, Peter, Brindell, Chris, AJ, Jeff, Alidar, Tony, Ian, Jack, Jason, Michael, Daniel, John, Jason, Michael again, Kevin, Hal, Ben, Jake, Mark, Mick, Shannon, Jim, Kirillin, Bill, Pedro, Mike, Eric, Max, Stephen, Josh, Mark, Nikolai, David, Matt, Peter, and Robert. Thanks very much, folks. If you've been listening for a while and felt like you wanted to contribute something back to the, the running costs of the, the download bandwidth and website hosting that keeps the podcast up online, even if it's a, a buck a show, that goes a long way to keeping my wife happy and on board with these things. You can support the show by becoming a supporter at Patreon and look for Rotary Wing Show or through the website at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Thanks for hanging out with me again. I'm looking forward to doing it again. I'm also really looking forward to the new Top Gun movie. The original had a big part in shaping my path to getting into flying.